exact imprint of his nature. And so, page after page after page, he is saying to them, consider him. And this is the great gospel antidote to backsliding, to drifting. If you find yourself this morning beginning to drift from Christ, the gospel antidote is consider Christ. We drift from Him because we are becoming disconnected from Him, distanced from Him in our thinking and in our affections. And the great way for our thinking and affections to be recalibrated is to consider Jesus. And so, in chapter 7, we we're breaking into his exposition of Christ as the perfect high priest after the order of Melchizedek, this shadowy figure who appears out of nowhere in Genesis 14, and then who disappears from the scene only to be resurrected, as it were, in the 110th Psalm, this strange figure who, whose origins we do not know, uh, who, like resembling the Son of God, has neither beginning of days nor end of life. And the writer is saying, you know, the priests, the priests that you have known all your days, they live and they die. They live and they die. They live and they die. But God has a better priest who lives but never dies. And this is Jesus Christ, who by the power of an indestructible life, as he says, acts as the high priest of the people of God, even now in the very presence of God. Consider him. So we read in verse 11 of chapter 7. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, his name is Melchizedek, king of righteousness, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing 
perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Well, before we turn to God's Word, let us pray. Lord, you have given us your Word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Your Word makes us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And you've given us, along with your Word, the Holy Spirit, to enlighten our sin-darkened minds. And so we pray, Lord, with the psalmist, Lord, open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your law. And we ask it all in our Savior, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. If there is any one word that takes us to the very heart of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, it is the word, it is finished. Now, you're thinking, well, Ian, that's three words, not one. Well, actually, in Greek, it's one word, tetelestai. Tetelestai, it is finished. We need no more sacrifices for sin. Our Savior, by His own self-offering on Calvary's cross, became Himself the propitiation for our sins. He did not come to make salvation possible. He came to secure salvation. He came to accomplish redemption, which, as the letter to the Hebrews tells us again and again and again, He did once for all by His blood shedding on Calvary's cross. It is finished. The salvation that He came to accomplish, He accomplished. We need nothing to add to it. He did it all. And yet, at the same time, Jesus Christ continues to work. When he cried out, it is finished, he was not saying that he had nothing else more to do. 
And so the writer to the Hebrews tells us here in verse 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. When our Lord Jesus Christ ascended gloriously through the heavens into the nearer presence of God, he did so not to lie on flowery beds of ease. He ever lives, moment by moment, if I can use special language, second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, relentlessly, unwearyingly, unfailingly interceding for all who come to God through Him. You remember how the high priest in, we don't have time to go back to the book of Exodus, but how the high priest would, would enter the holy place and the most holy place, and he would have the, the names of the twelve tribes on his shoulders and on the breastplate near his heart. So the Lord Jesus Christ as he, as the great high priest of the people of God, entered into the nearer presence of God, did so as the covenant head of his people, carrying us with him, carrying us with him before the very throne of God. I want really very simply to ask four questions of this text this morning. I want first of all to ask the question, what is the nature of this intercession of our heavenly great high priest? What is the nature of this intercession? We are told that he always lives to make intercession for them. Well, there are two ways, I think, in which we can think of the intercession, the heavenly intercession of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are those, I'm not one of them, but there are those who believe, and, and they're good, good men, uh, faithful expositors, reformed believers. They believe that Jesus Christ vocally intercedes with His Father, that He vocally as our great high priest petitions the Father for the needs of His people. And I have to say, I think that's possible, but I think we're on safer ground with John Calvin, John Owen, and actually Charles Wesley in the last hymn. When they understand the intercession of Christ not to be vocal, but actually, his intercession is his very presence at the right hand of the majesty on high. As Charles Wesley put it in his hymn, uh, the five wounds are the eloquent intercession of the Son as the Father beholds the glory of his Son. He sees the marks of redemption and sanctification and perfect righteousness. The Son needs not to bend the knee before the Father and speak 
petitions to the Father. The Father beholds the Son. He beholds the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as the Father beholds the Son, He sees in the Son all that the Son came to accomplish. And what did He come to accomplish? He came to accomplish all that the Father gave Him to accomplish. He came to fulfill the perfect will of the Father. He came to redeem a countless multitude that no man can number. He came to bring us into the kingdom of God, into the family of God. He came to make us the temple of the living God. He came through our union with Him by the ministry of the Holy Spirit to conform us to His likeness. And as the Father beholds His Son gazing in endless admiration, at what his son wrought by his life of holy obedience and by his death of perfect sacrifice. The father hears, as it were, or better sees the intercession of the son. And all that the son came to accomplish is now visibly present before the Heavenly Father. I, I think it's better not to think of Christ vocally in our humanity, asking the Father for this and for that and for the next thing. His very presence is His intercession. His very presence. If we time, there's a Calvin's exposition of the, this truth in Romans 8, 34, who is he that condemns? It is Christ Jesus who died, who is now seated at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Calvin has a, a magnificent passage. Read it at your leisure. And if you have time, delve into John Owen. He's, he's echoing Calvin, but in a very Owenite way at, at great length. Uh, with clause after clause after clause after clause, he, he, he just holds up Jesus Christ and says, His rich wounds yet visible above are the eloquent intercession of the Son before the face of the Father. Well, if the nature of His intercession is His very presence, in heaven. What is the content of his intercession? More specifically, what did his obedience unto death come to accomplish? Well, perhaps the best window we have into that is in the Lord's high priestly prayer, as we call it in John 17. If you turn to John 17 for a few moments, You'll find it helpful, I think, to do so. It's, it's a remarkable prayer. We're given an astonishing insight into the heart and mind 
of the Savior as, as the shadow of the cross begins to penetrate his human soul. And we find that what really is absorbing him is the care that he must give to the disciples and beyond them to the church that he bought with his precious blood throughout the ages of history. And there are four things in particular that the Lord Jesus Christ prays for here in John 17. He prays, first of all, do you notice in verse 6, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me. Keep them in your name. Father, they are yours. You gave them to me. I give them back to you. Lord, they are vulnerable. We'll look at this a little later. They are fragile. They are temptable. Keep them. Preserve them that not one may be lost. And the Father always hears the Son. Always hears the Son. Keep them in your name. But then he goes on later on down in, in verse 13. He, he prays, keep them from the evil one. Now, now, he's speaking here in verses 6 through 19 specifically of the disciples. But not exclusively of them. If you look down to verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, through, through the proclamation of the apostolic gospel. So, we can legitimately say, yes, there, there is a principial movement in the prayer for the disciples that they might become his infallible penmen, that they might be preserved as they seek to make known the grace of God in Jesus Christ and, and become the authentic penmen of God in scripturating the revelation of God concerning His Son. And so he secondly prays then that they will be kept from the evil one because the life of faith is an embattled life. And the devil is as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Remember how even Peter, as he listened to Jesus, he could say, Lord, don't talk about dying. The cross, Lord, be that far from you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Now, it could have been worse. He could have said, get behind me, Peter. Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. We'll come to that. There is an enemy. He is a roaring lion. He is a prowling lion. You hear the roar of the lion, 1 Peter 5, isn't it, 6 through 8? You hear the roar of the lion just as it's about to pounce. It's been waiting stealthily, plotting, planning. If you're a Christian believer here this morning, Satan is plotting every moment of every day your fall from grace. He is doing his hellish worst to trip you up 
to turn you aside. He does it methodically. That's the word Paul uses in Ephesians 6, the, the methods, the methodea of Satan. He has methods particularly suited to your temperament, your personality, your background, your history, your strengths, your weaknesses. And it's your strengths that are actually your weaknesses. And the Savior prays, keep them from the evil one. And then thirdly, in verse 17, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify means set them apart exclusively for devotedness to you. The word holy, holiness, sanctified, the whole um, cognate nature, both in Hebrew and Greek, it's not simply the idea of being set apart. That's fundamental. But it's set apart for devotedness. How do we become devoted believers? How do we become set apart unto the Lord through the Word of God? There are no shortcuts. How did our Lord Jesus Christ know the Scriptures? You say, well... Is a silly question. He's the Son of God. Ah, what does the third servant song in Isaiah tell us? You need to know the book of Isaiah. You need to know all the books of the Bible. Morning by morning, he wakens my ear to hear as one who is taught. There were no shortcuts for the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't excused the maturative, educative processes of learning. He grew in wisdom and in favor with God and with man. He, he had to learn the Scriptures. As Sabbath day by Sabbath day, he would go to the synagogue. He would hear the Scriptures read. And it was not uncommon for rabbis to have memorized what we call infelicitously, the Old Testament. And it may be our Lord Jesus Christ knew off by heart the whole of the Old Testament. Remember when he was being tempted in the wilderness, Satan comes with his plausible temptations. Three times the Lord plunders the book of Deuteronomy uh, once in chapter 8, twice in chapter 6. He doesn't have a Torah in his back pocket. There isn't a smartphone. He thinks, right, what's the next thing I can say back to Satan here? He knows the Scriptures. He's not excused. He was sanctified, not from um, sin to sinlessness. He was always sinless. But he became as sanctified at the age of one as a one-year-old could be at the age of five, as a five-year-old could be. At the age of 10, as a 10-year-old could be. At the age of 20, as a 20-year-old could be, and so on. There's a great passage in Irenaeus, the third century um, Greek Latin father. He was really a Latin, but he did Greek. Um, great passage in Irenaeus. Um, where in Irenaeus? Now, there's a thought. If I stood long enough, I could possibly tell you. Um, probably in the against heresies, adversus heresies, where he speaks of the, the growth in sanctification of the
the Son of God from one degree of glory to another. But he wasn't excused the maturative processes. And as our great high priest, he's praying, Father, sanctify them through the truth. Your word is truth. We need to be men and women, boys and girls, who are bibline like we heard earlier, Charles uh, Spurgeon, you know, uh, who, who said, I think, of Bunyan, if, if you pricked him, his blood would be bibline. We need to know the Bible. We don't know the Bible as well as we need to. We don't know the Bible today as a previous generation did. When I went to university as a very young Christian, I was deeply impressed by some young men, but a little older at me at university. They were all in the Christian brethren, the Plymouth brethren, but my, did they know their Bibles. We need to know the Scriptures. And the Savior's praying that we will be sanctified in the truth. Your word is truth. And then he prays that they would be one. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. How is the world to believe that the Father sent the Son? Well, according to the Savior, when His people exhibit Trinitarian likeness, oneness. Now, that has got no reference to ecumenical unity. It's not saying we should all be one happy big denomination. We're to be one in our submissiveness to the Word so that with our differences, whether we're Baptist, Presbyterian, or whatever, if we are those who live under the Word, and are being shaped and styled by the Word, who are feeding upon it, and who love the God of the Word, and who look to the Spirit of God to illuminate the Word, and who understand that the written Word always leads us to the living Word, Jesus Christ. That's our unity. Our unity is in Christ. And the world needs to see that our unity is founded in this. We're all washed in the same blood. We can have our differences. We can discuss them animatedly. But we do so as family. And the Lord Jesus is praying that His disciples and his believing people throughout the ages will be one just as he and the Father are one. They're distinct. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Father, so on. But there is a oneness in the distinctness. So, the nature of his intercession is that he is there at the right hand of the Father having accomplished all that the Father has given him to do. The content of his intercession is, as we have seen, 
But then thirdly, why is He making intercession on our behalf? Why does He ever live? Why does He unceasingly, relentlessly, without, as it were, almost taking breath, why is He ever living to make intercession for us? Because He is a sympathetic and faithful high priest. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust because He is dust. He loves us. And as a great high priest, He commits Himself to caring for, watching over His blood-bought people. The Christian life is an unrelenting battle. I wonder if we sufficiently help young people understand that. Jesus was always saying to people, if you want to come after me, I need to tell you this. You need to be ready to die. You know, we say, when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, I think many of us have in our minds the idea, well, you know, life is full of crosses. He's got a nagging wife. She's got a lazy husband. They've got disobedient children, all of that. That's got nothing to do with what Jesus is saying, absolutely nothing. The crowds listened to Jesus and knew what he was saying. You're going to follow me, you need to be ready to die. How to win friends and influence people. Someone comes to your door tonight and says, I know you're a Christian. I, I, I think I want to be a Christian. Is there anything I really need to know? You need to know this quoting Jesus, unless you renounce everything you have, unless you hate in comparison to your love to me, husband, wife, children, friends, you cannot be my disciple. The Christian life is an unrelenting battle and we need one who will plead our cause. One of the great pericopes, one of the great brief passages in the Gospels is when Jesus, as he faces the cross, turns and says to Peter, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, and the you is plural. Satan has desired to sift you all, to, to unhinge you, dismantle you. And then he says this, but I have prayed for you, Peter, you individually. That's a great thing. The Lord doesn't pray en masse for his people. He prays for each individual. That's a great thing. I think it was Thomas Goodwin somewhere in the 12, I, I should know where this is, somewhere in the 12 volumes he says, God did not lay our sin in the lump upon Christ. He laid our sins in their particularity upon Christ. Martin Luther puts it very dramatically in his commentary in Galatians, where 
he personifies what's happening on the cross, and the Father, as it were, saying to the Son, be thou that man, Adam, who sinned in the garden. Be thou that man, David, the adulterer, wickedly taking another man's wife and then killing her husband. Be thou that man, Peter, who denied the Son of God in the garden, and so he goes on. There's a particularity, as we heard earlier this morning so wonderfully, to the Lord's care of His own. I have prayed for you personally. He knows your frame. He knows every struggle, every trial, every trouble, every disappointment, every sorrow, every burden. He knows because He has been tempted in all points just as we are. Hebrews 4. I have prayed for you. And that's why in chapter 4, the writer says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I always read those words with a mixture of incredulity and wonderment. When I think, when I think, of how Satan tempts me. I think, Lord Jesus, were you tempted like that? Young men, young men here today, young men, the Savior was tempted just as you were tempted. And because he never faltered and never gave in, he is able to help you. He stood where we falter and fail. He's making intercession for you if you're in Christ because He knows your frame. He remembers that you are dust. But then a fourth question, for whom is He interceding? Well, again, the text tells us, doesn't it? Consequently, because He has a priesthood that continues forever, He is able to save to the uttermost or uh, completely or at all times, literally, those who draw near to God through Him. He's not interceding for everyone. He's interceding for those who draw near to God through Him. If you're a Christian believer here this morning, however weak your faith may be, your salvation does not rest on the weakness of your faith, but on the strength of your Savior. It's not strong faith that saves, it's faith. It's not weak faith that condemns, it's the lack of faith. But He intercedes for those who draw near to God through Him, who, who see Him as the way, the truth, and the life, who see Him as the Lamb of God, the only Lamb, the only begotten of the Father, the one in whom alone God could deal effectively with sin and rebellion and shame and judgment and condemnation. If you've seen that in Jesus Christ, He's praying for you. Not vocally, 
but his very presence before the Father is his intercession because his glorified body says, Father, I paid in full the price to ransom them, redeem them, sanctify them, and glorify them. Let me close by just making two brief applications. Number one, this is a wonderful comfort for Christians. If you're a Christian here this morning, if you have come to entrust your whole life, resting the weight of all that you are on the grace and love and sufficiency of Jesus Christ, then this is a comfortable truth for you to consider. You're so precious to the Son of God, so precious that He ever lives. Every waking moment, every sleeping moment in your life, He's ever living, pleading your cause by the glorified body that's at the right hand of the Father. But if it's a wonderful comfort for Christians, it should make unbelievers tremble. You have no heavenly intercessor pleading your cause. You're a prey to the world, the flesh, and the devil. You're in the most perilous of conditions. But if you come to Jesus Christ, maybe you're thinking, well, Ian, Ian, how do I come to Jesus Christ? Remember how Charles Spurgeon was converted? He found himself one snowy, dark winter's evening in a church in London. He was the only person there. Preacher never turned up, the congregation never turned up. And the church officer came in, opened the Bible, looked around, and he sees Spurgeon. And he says, Young man, you look miserable. God says, Look to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. A look will do it. A look will do it. You don't need to be schooled in the profundities of Christian doctrine. Hopefully, please God, you'll go on to that. It's not profundity that saves you, it's a look. One look, one look that says, have mercy on me. And he will. For whoever comes to me, I will never turn away. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you ever live to make intercession for all your people the youngest, the oldest, the strongest, the weakest, you ever live to plead our cause that we might be kept, kept from the evil one, 
sanctified by your truth and become one in our gospel faithfulness to you and to one another. Lord Jesus, look upon us. Remember us for good. At our best, Lord, we are poor and needy. But you are our great high priest. You carry us upon your heart. You rejoice over us with loud singing. Look upon us, we pray. Gracious God, we ask it all in our Savior's name. Amen.